0: Well, can you imagine, you know, as Beth read there, both sets of passages for us, can you imagine what it would have been like? I mean, Judas, one of Jesus' closest, I mean, he knew it was going to happen, but Judas betrays Jesus. And the guilt from what has happened is so intense, it's so intense that he can't take it any longer and he hangs himself. It's brutal. But well, what do we find? We find Peter now meeting with Jesus for the first time after denying him three times at a very reminiscent charcoal fire. When I was in college, um, I was a part of a, a really fun ministry It had a really cheesy name. It was called Heart Song. You know, people would always go, oh, heartthrob. Um, <laughs> and what we would do is travel around the Midwest and we would give pastors and ministry team leaders the opportunity to take a break. And so we would lead the music as well as give a devotional on a Sunday morning. And we met, or I got to see a lot of different churches. I got to see a few good ones. And I got to see a lot of messy ones. I mean just really really messy, messy churches. For example, there was one where we we did the service in the morning and then right at the very end the youth pastor comes up and says I mean, we're all looking at each other. Why is he coming up on stage? And he says, this is actually my last Sunday. I am resigning um, from the youth, pastor or youth ministry here at this church, uh, effective immediately. And I look down at the senior pastor and his face is just in utter shock with his mouth open. And the youth pastor said, and we've ordered pizza. And so we will have a social afterwards down in the basement. And I'm going to tell you about what God is guiding me to do next. Oh, goody. Um... There was another time, uh, another, another instance where I was meeting with a gentleman over a meal after a service, and he came up to me and he said he just began talking about this brutal divorce he went through and how he'd lost the custody to his kids. And I said, oh, really? I mean, tell me a little bit about this story, how I can pray for you. And he goes, well, the courts had ripped the kids out of my hands because of abuse allegations. And, you know, I never touched my kids. I said, well, what about your wife? And he would never answer that question. And he just was so creepy. And and then afterwards he said, you know, I feel like God's calling me to keep families together. The court systems are ripping families apart. And God's calling me to keep families together like mine, that the court system ripped apart. And I'm thinking, dude, no way. Like there's some serious issues going on here. Let's talk about this. This is not what God's calling you to. I can almost guarantee it. Another instance um, was... A middle-aged woman, her husband had just passed away. She had two young kids, and she'd been ostracized by the church. I mean, there was a lot going on in her life, and the church needed to surround her and come alongside of her and walk through it. It was going to be a long journey, but instead, nobody really wanted to pick up the baton, and so she was ostracized, became the object of gossip and ridicule. And all the while, the, the pastor drives away in a brand new BMW, and I thought to myself, where am I? And the crazy thing is, this was all at one church, one Sunday morning. And I thought, yikes, what is going on? Um, But really, (laughs) the North American church has a pretty negative stereotype, doesn't it? I mean, we know a lot of people, I'm sure each one of us do, of people who have left the church. They've had negative experiences for whatever reason, and now they just seem to think the church is judgmental, it's arrogant, it's gossipy. Um, It always has to be right about everything. It's overly political. And you almost wonder if many Christians will hear this when they approach the new heavens and new earth, and it's up on the screen. You're a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. You know? (laughs) There, There are days, right, when it's hard to love the church. There are days, depending on your background and your experience, where it's even hard to tolerate the church. And whether you or... One of your friends or your family members, you, you may, they may be asking, what good is the church? I mean, why, why do we need this institution anyway? What's God doing in all this? And so people choose to go it alone. They say, Jesus and me, that's all I need, right? That's all, that's all that I really need to make it in my walk with Christ. And I don't know how many times I've met people and had lunches or coffees and they say, yeah, I believe Jesus lived, died, rose again, but the church is just too messed up. I give up. Um, I think God's calling me to a different kind of community, something other than the church. And we can all admit at times that the church is awkward. (laughs) Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's unattractive. Sometimes things don't go according to plan. But this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't shock us. Jesus knew it would be like this when he instituted the church. And how? How? How do we know? I mean, just look at the first leader of the church. The one upon whom he said, I will build my church upon him. Peter. Who? Peter? Really? Peter? The guy who denies you three times at one of the most critical moments in your ministry at the cross? The church is Jesus' idea. So if we don't like the church, he's obviously the person we need to pick it up with. And Jesus, and hear this, ever since the beginning, Jesus has built his church with broken people. Jesus builds the church with broken people, always. And today we're landing at the end of John's account of the gospel. John chapter 21. You know, uh, last week we heard in John chapter 20, the crescendo of the gospel proclamation. Jesus is alive. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is fully man and fully God, this amazing proclamation of his deity. And in that moment, we hear that we're called to a new kind of faith, not this touchable faith where we're following Jesus and getting literal dust on ourselves, but now a new kind of faith, a resurrection faith, a bodily resurrection and a bodily king of one whom we no no, no longer see at this juncture until he returns. Peter says right in his letter, you love him and yet you haven't seen him. You believe in him, although you have not touched him. This new kind of faith. But still, in John 21, for whatever reason, Jesus is still doing something. He's not done meeting with the apostles. So in John 21, we see that we not only need to have a new kind of faith, but a new kind of love. A reordering of our loves. And I mean really love Jesus. And if we really love Jesus, we'll see that we really should love the church. You see, it's easy to come with our own expectations on what the church should look like, how it should measure up to our standards, how it could be doing things better. It's easy to remember all the past hurts from this church or that church. But Jesus is the one who builds his church with broken people. And this morning, with new members publicly dedicating themselves or committing themselves uh, to this community, this local expression of the church... We're going to explore two sides of Jesus' paradoxical church. And here afresh is called to not just follow him to the cross, but follow him all the way to the church. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some free Bibles on the tables right on the other side of the divider there. Please feel free to take one, own it. God's word is valuable. We believe it it gives God's design for all of life and guides us through the, uh, the realities of our broken world. But when we step into John 21, we come with a backdrop of failure. A backdrop of failure. I mean, you heard it read this morning. Before Jesus' death, Peter warming himself at a charcoal fire. Remember this, warming himself at a charcoal fire. He outright rejects Jesus three times, committing the unthinkable. What he told to Jesus' face, he would never do. Right there to his face. Jesus, I'll never do that. Oh, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. All right, Jesus right but then jesus appears twice in john's gospel we see the way he highlights this twice and peter's not even mentioned he's not even mentioned the second resurrection appearance is as though it's, it's, it's as if though thomas is the highlight of the whole restitution i mean could you imagine the weight of silence that's going on in peter's mind and heart the thoughts Jesus told me he was going to build his church on me. This new community was going to be led by me. He even changed my name to Rock, Cephas. But now I feel like a failure. Of course I'll never lead again. Of course I deserve to be pushed aside. You can imagine the questions that are swirling in Peter's mind as a leader. Well, in John 21, we're told that Jesus shows up a third time. And this time he has a heart-to-heart with Peter on what it means to reorder his love's. So Jesus, he told the disciples to go to Galilee and wait for him at the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, um, as it was frequently called as well. And we learn this from Mark's account of the gospel. But while they're there waiting, Peter tells the group what? Hey, I'm going to go fishing. Hey, you guys want to come with me? Let's go fishing. And so they all spend the night fishing and they catch nada. There's nothing like feeling like a failure and then you can't even catch a fish, right? That would surely stink. And then you've got this guy off in the distance, a couple yards off, and he gives the kind of like the common fisherman advice. Hey, did you try over here? It's Like, oh, seriously, I can't get a break. I can't leave the church. I can't catch a fish. And then there's this guy over there. He thinks he knows where the fish is at. So they put down the nets. And when they do, they get this net full of fresh fish, right? It's amazing that the nets don't even burst at the seams because they have 153 fish, a boatload of fish. And at that moment, the Apostle John, who's in there with, in the boat with Peter, he remembers one other time where this has happened. The Gospel account of Luke in chapter 5 records it. It's the first time Jesus meets Peter, James, and John because they were all a part of the same fishing enterprise together when Jesus first met them. And it's the same thing that happens. They're fishing all night and they don't catch anything. And then Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. So they do it, and they catch so much fish that their nets are about to break at that very moment, when Jesus first meets them at the initial point, at the very beginning of his ministry. And it's like something clicks for John, because John looks over at Peter and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. What's Peter do? It's really funny. He takes off his clothes and jumps in the water to swim to meet Jesus. And you can imagine the rest of the apostles going, Seriously, Peter? We've got to take care of all these fish and you just jump in the water. Come on. Well, when they get to the shore, they find an unexpected sight. They find Chef Jesus. Um, he's been making breakfast for them, cooking it over a charcoal fire. John makes this very explicit. He's connecting the dots for us. But he asked them to come after a long night's fishing, to finally, after they finally caught something, to come and eat with Jesus. But seriously, you can imagine the awkward silence Peter's having sitting next to Jesus. You, you almost wonder if there was like a tenacious joke. Like, Jesus, this, this fish is to die for. I mean, I, is this is really good fish. I mean, you know what, I, you know what I'm saying. But what, what would they have said? I mean, where do you start? When everything has happened, what do you say? Well, thankfully, Jesus breaks the silence, not Peter. And they finish eating, and the first thing Jesus says is, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other disciples? Peter goes, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Well, then feed my sheep, right? Then he says it a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I do. Well, then take care of my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's at this third moment that it just kind of sinks in for Peter. His heart hurts, and even the text says he's broken. He's grieved at this third question. But in brokenness and humility, not his normal brash self, not in overconfidence, he says, Lord, you know everything. Almost as a way of saying, last time I said no. Yeah, I love you. I won't deny you. You knew that I was going to deny you. Lord, you know everything. Who am I? And yet, I love you. So Jesus says in words of authority and affirmation and restoration once again, feed my sheep. He could have said a lot of things at that moment. I mean, we could, we could have plenty of other things that go along there. Well, Peter, I love you. Peter, I love you. Peter, you're forgiven. But what do we see? Feed my sheep. And it's in this little conversation between Peter and Jesus, when Peter almost seems to be willing to give it, give it all up, give up the mission, give up on himself, that Jesus points him to the church. And it's the strange fireside chat where we get these two observations about the paradoxical church. A paradox, what is a paradox? It appears self-contradictory, but it isn't, right? Both statements are absolutely true, although they appear contradictory. And the first thing we see in this paradoxical church is that the church is messy. The church is messy, (laughs) <laughs> you know, we hear it right now. You've got all kinds of noises going on. You never know what you're going to expect in the church. But why does Jesus keep talking about sheep? Why does he keep talking about she- sheep? Did he have some sheep side business that we didn't know about that's going on? No, he doesn't have a sheep side business, does he? Rather, throughout scripture, God's people were likened to sheep. And God likened to the good Shepherd. And we find the primary metaphor for the people of God in the gospel of John is sheep. A flock of sheep. A new community centered on the gospel is likened to a bunch of dirty sheep. And one of the most prominent places we find that is in John chapter 10. What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. Whoa, I thought God said that about Israel. But now Jesus is saying this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. Sheep are messy creatures. Um, they're farm animals. They're not the kind um, that, that we would say are housebred, you know. They're not cats that we would keep with a litter box inside of our homes. And the church is described as them. A bunch of messy people gathering together in the midst of a messy world. And anyone who places their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is invited in. Even Peter, who denied Jesus three times, like I said, at the most critical moment in Jesus' journey, is restored. Why is the church messed up? Why are Christians seemingly as bad as everyone else? It's because in this group, we all raise our hands and say we can't make it on our own. We admit that we're messed up. The church has that knack where we bring a bunch of the worst together. (laughs) I'm one of those. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And we know we need a redeemer. We know we're sheep. And some of you this morning, you felt like you've blown it too big or you've messed up too many times and you're tired of the awkward silence. You're looking for that healing place. And this is what the church is called to be. It's it's not a place of quick fixes, but a long obedience in the same direction together in community even though it's difficult, it's what we're called to as the church. A place where people like Peter, who are screwed up, messed up, and puffed up, come to be made whole rather than holier than thou. The church is basically, like we've said, a bunch of messy sheep seeking to follow the shepherd. So I, I want to ask a couple questions to us this morning. Are you prone to run away from conflict? Are you afraid of what people might come to know about you? what you've done in the past, what's been done to you, who you feel you are, then come and enter the mess and be restored. This is the church. This isn't, you know, the old adage is, this isn't a showcase for saints, right? But it's a hospital for sinners. I grew up hearing this. But it's very true. It's a place of restoration. A place where everybody admits that they're messed up. Now, some of you have been hurt terribly by the church at one point or another. And let me say, if no one's ever said this before, I am sorry. I really am. The church, when it gets it wrong, gets it wrong big time. <laughs> and I do believe that the local church, as God designed it, is God's plan A for the work of redemption in the world. But when the church doesn't live as the church is designed to it can also become a very toxic place but don't let another church define every church okay there are certain circumstances in various communities that are extremely broken and they've become inwardly toxic but don't let that one example destroy all possibilities of entering into community of faith so come enter the mess and be vulnerable once again right now, some of you, and I'm sure I'm not talking to anyone in here this morning, you're tired of the hard-to-deal-with people that are coming in. You're, you're tired of the hypocrites. You're, you're tired of the failures and the dents. Well, hear this again. Jesus builds his church with broken people. I mean, the church is called to be a caring family, right? Some of you are waiting to plug into a church until you find the perfect church. Well, if that day ever comes, I'd encourage you not to join it because you'll probably screw it up. Um, Anyone would. If it's a perfect church, each one of us in here knows that we're not perfect. So we're going to be the ones who mess it up. So I'd encourage you to just leave that church and let it enjoy its bliss um, if there is such a place. So take a note from Jesus, the founder of the church, and be patient with people. Be patient with people. How do you respond to brokenness? Do you look down your nose at others who look down their noses at others? Do you always find yourself frustrated by the church? Do you always find yourself sitting on the sidelines because you never have time for what the church happens to be doing this time? Well, come, enter the mess, and be gracious. Take a note from Jesus. What's the point? Why be gracious in the first place? Because the church isn't merely messy. And this is where the paradox is. The church is precious. You know, that's the paradox. The church is a precious mess. (laughs) How many precious messes do we have in our lives? You know, it's time to clean up the mess, not adore it. And we think we all have these different ways of knowing whether we're true disciples of Jesus or not. If we do this or if we do that. But do you want to know what what it means to really love Jesus? Right here in the story, we see that we don't love Jesus. I mean really love him unless we care for the sheep. Unless we love what the shepherd loves, his sheep, we can't say we love Jesus. I mean, there have been plenty of people who have made a big deal about kind of the different words of love here. You know, is it phileo to agape, back to phileo and so on. And same way with feed and tend and feed. I believe that John's really just being stylistic here um, with his use of the Greek. It's not really the emphasis for us to wrestle through. That's my personal opinion. I know a lot of people are split on that. But rather, I think Jesus wants us to know that any kind of love is no love for him at all if it doesn't spread over to the church. Any kind of love for him is no kind of love at all if it doesn't spread over to the church. I mean, how does this work itself out for Peter? Well, he gives Peter a window into what awaits his life, doesn't he? He says, Peter, you're going to actually, your arms are going to be open and spread wide, which is a way of saying you're going to be crucified. This is a common euphemism for crucifixion. And you're going to die for these very sheep when you die for me. In a world that rejects what Jesus loves, martyrdom is his future. Peter's going to die for the sheep just like Jesus did. I had a friend of mine in Chicago. He grew up in Texas. So Texas, Texas? Um, he grew up in Texas, um, but he grew up kind of on the rough side of the neighborhood. I mean, he was a really tall white guy, like super tall, like seven foot something. And he played basketball, and he always had a pretty rough perspective on life, but he was a follower of Jesus, just wrestling through what that meant. But he was always trying to be super gangster. He was just always rough. And he'd say, you know, Gabe, I want to go to a place where I can die for Jesus. You know, man, if, if somebody asked me whether to deny my faith or to die for Jesus, I'd die for him right there, man. Dude, I'm living with all these lazy Christians in Chicago. They're making me lazy. I said, <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay. And I know this is going to be an extreme case, so sit with me. But this is the same person whose wife was battling with depression on medication and he would lock her out and tell her to go kill herself. This is the same person who would go out into the church parking lot after church and have these major blowouts over the smallest political differences. And I told him something that I realized I needed to hear again, and I think we all need to hear on a regular basis. If you won't die daily for your brother and sister in Christ who sits beside you, die daily to your preferences, die daily to your past failures, to their past failures, to the church's past failures, then you'll never be prepared to really die for Jesus. We want to act all macho because it's so abstract and out there. Well, if we can't do what's right in front of us, who's to say that we'll do what's way out there? You know, Jesus, he loves his church. And if you love Jesus, you'll learn to love her too. I mean why is the church so precious because as we're going to see in the coming couple weeks the church is the institution he has established to carry out his mission constantly throughout the new testament what is the church called the body of christ his hands and his feet to carry out his mission in a broken world it's messy but it's precious It's the body of Christ, and it's a primary place God has designed for his people to be fed and to feed others. Now, After Jesus tells Peter all this, what does he say? I think this is just absolutely mind-blowing. Does he say, now go do it? Good luck, this is going to be tough. What does he say instead? He says, follow me. Follow me. And this is what we see. You cannot have true discipleship without the church. You cannot have true discipleship without the church. If you're following Jesus alone, you need to check the shepherd because you're probably not following him, okay? Being a part of a local church is not an option for a true believer. If you're asking where is Jesus, I want to ask you first, are you following him all the way through the cross to the church? This is where Jesus has called us. I remember when I was in Israel, I was at Jericho, and uh, the ancient site of Jericho. And coming down the hillside was this shepherd, this Bedouin shepherd, common throughout Israel. And the sheep, where were they? They weren't all scattered around, they weren't in front of the shepherd, they weren't leading the shepherd. There wasn't just one sheep, but there was a crew of sheep, single file, following the shepherd, listening to his voice. It's funny, he would start singing a song as he was walking, and the sheep would know the song and they would follow the shepherd along. There's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is pointing to in ancient Near Eastern shepherding style. The sheep know his voice and they follow him. And if you're following him, you'll find that you're not alone. (laughs) You're not alone. Yeah, the church is messy, but she's precious. And Jesus, he gave his life for her. Will we hear his call to each and every one of us to do the same? If we love Jesus, we'll love what Jesus loves. And what Jesus loves is the church. Christ Community Downtown, do you love Jesus? Will follow Jesus. And your faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before you throughout the millennia by feeding his sheep. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning, thankful for your church. She's precious, but she's messy too. Um, Sometimes she has baggage that's hard to carry. But Lord, you died for the church. And you've called us to be engaged in community, to live out the one another's of scripture with others who are seeking to grow and follow and to nourish your body. Give us wisdom as we go forward this week and these years. To follow you not just to the cross and try to stand by ourselves, but follow you all the way to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on a weekly basis, um, we follow Jesus to the table as well, um, to remember a meal he prepared for his church, to remember how he'd laid down his life for her. It's here in the gospel we feast, you know, um... We preach the gospel to our senses through taste, touch, and smell. And in this moment, through broken bread, we remember his body broken for us. And poor juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Throughout history, it's been called what? Communion. You cannot commune by yourself. Otherwise, it's really weird. It becomes meditation, not communion. (laughs) Communion involves community being engaged with others. And for the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you, plural. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All who are part of the flock of Jesus, who have given their lives over to Christ as making him Lord and Savior, are welcome to partake of the table. But if you are not a member of the body of Christ, universal, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community, but if you're not a member of the church, if you're not a believer in Jesus, we'd ask for you to abstain. For the Lord's table is for his own. And at this time, if you do partake, you can come down the center aisles. There's no rush. Come around the sides, partake in the two communion stations in the back, and then return to your seats. Whenever you're ready, please come.